to start with uh, hepatic emergencies today. And um, this lecture is essentially a lecture um, about critical actions. So it's what you really need to know about hepatic emergencies so that when you're on a shift, you'll know exactly what to do. It's extremely relevant, I hope, and uh, we'll give you the nuts and bolts um, of hepatic emergencies. All right. So objectives. You know, um, a typical adult learner remembers one fact in a 45-minute lecture. Now, I know you guys are not typical. You are anything but. But that being said, the way adult learners remember things is to, first of all, tell you what I'm. So first of all, the key is to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to recap what I just told you. So it's kind of repetition, much different than when we were children, where we absorbed every little thing. My kids now say one word, and they'll repeat it like 10 times, and they'll remember it. It's kind of uncanny. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this lecture is going to cover, I, you're going to be able to identify emergent complications of chronic liver, liver failure. Emergent complications of chronic liver failure. You're going to begin treatment for the emergent complications of liver failure. So you're going to identify them, and then you're going to learn how to treat them. And then finally, you're going to discuss the care and disposition of these patients. What this lecture is not going to cover is acute liver failure. And acute liver failure, as you know, is different than chronic liver failure. And that really is a topic of a toxi toxicologic topic that we're not going to discuss today, mainly uh, acetaminophen overdose, N-acetylcysteine, and whatnot. So we are not going to cover that today. That's going to be a different lecture. OK. The case. Let's see. Let's see. We have two R1s. Dina, I haven't heard from you in a while. There it is. <laughs> We're going to do a case. All right. A 48-year-old male, altered mental status, brought in by EMS from home, vomited 500 mLs of blood. You're uh, a blossoming R2, or about to be, and you get this ALS run call, and uh, they said, Patient's going to be here in two minutes. Okay. What's going through your head? Uh, so, airway, first of all. So is this person aspirating? So, altered mental status, or are you going to have to intubate the patient so I get the airway stuff ready? Okay. Um, and then at the same time, I'm thinking possible GI bleed or esophageal rupture or something. So, um, so airway and breathing, I'm looking at to manage an airway. Mm -hmm. And then circulation-wise, are they hemodynamically stable? Are we going to have to give them blood? Are we going to have to resuscitate them? Great. Yeah. So the patient arrives, and here are the vital signs. You have these vital signs in front of you. Patient walks in. There's some Kool-Aid slash red jello slash blood all over their chest. Okay. And this is, uh, this, these are his vital signs, instantaneous. Like when you come in, boom, nurses are all over it. Two hypertensive tachycardics. Um, so it starts two large pore IVs while I'm assessing airway. Okay, so 16, 16, 18 gauge right and left and two positive. Great. Now, the problem with this guy is they're having a tough time finding an IV. They can't. They're looking all over. They can't find an IV. The nurses are struggling, and I, I totally agree. They're looking, they're looking, they're looking as you're assessing the situation, you're getting the vital signs. And one of the nurses says, Dr. Ibrahim, I know this guy. It took us 45 minutes to get an IV last time when he came in with belly pain. We're not going to get an IV. So at this point, we're looking at either EJ, IO, or central line. All right, great. So you have your adjuncts to IV access ready. And this is how he looks. See, sorry, quick question because I wasn't sure it's going to Can you put blood through an IO? Yes, you can. Okay. Absolutely. You can put anything through an IO like you would like a normal IV. 
So he's pale, he's diaphoretic, he's in moderate distress, he is non-focal, he's tachycardic as you mentioned, and that's um, confirmed with your exam. His lungs sound normal, you don't hear any crackles, you don't hear wheezes, you do hear bilateral breath sounds. His abdomen is distended, it's tense, it's slightly tender, nothing impressive, and he's got lower extremity edema, 2 plus, about to the middle portion of his thighs. Um, is he talking? What's his yeah, so he's, he is talking to you, although he looks pretty ill. Okay. He's in moderate distress, but he answers all of your questions. He is alert and oriented times four. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't quite know what to do. I would, and is he on any oxygen at this point? He is um, on whatever you want him to be on. Okay, so we can start him on a 15, a non-rebreather. All right, so he's on a non-rebreather mask because his oxygen saturation is 92%, he's breathing at 24, he's telling you, I vomited up blood, okay. this is the second time this happened, last time they had to put something, a camera down my throat, and that's where we are right now, and he's not actively vomiting, but certainly looks pretty ill. Okay. What's on your differential diagnosis now? Has it narrowed down at all? So I'm thinking GI bleed, Okay. Um, if this is someone with like liver cirrhosis or hepatic failure and they're having varices that they're bleeding from, okay. that's something that I'm thinking about uh, versus like a perforated um, ulcer, whether it's gastric or duodenal. Um, and then with the lower extremity edema, it's pointing more towards liver if they have low albumin or something. Okay. All right. Wonderful. We'll get back to this case. We're going to talk about the complications of chronic liver failure. <clears throat> we've all seen this. We've seen the hepatic encephalopathy. We've seen ascites. We're going to talk about SBP, um, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. We're going to talk about variceal bleeding, especially esophageal variceal bleeding. And we're going to talk about hepatorenal syndrome. We throw that term around a lot. And oftentimes we don't know what that term really means, but uh, we have an idea where we're going to talk about these four things and the treatment, um, the identification and treatment uh, of these patients. All right, hepatic encephalopathy. Well, we all know about hepatic encephalopathy, right? Folks have portal hypertension and ammonia levels and other metabolites build up into the system. They build up and then patients get confused. They get lethargic. They get altered. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about hepatic encephalopathy and how the ammonia level, does that really correlate with hepatic encephalopathy? Is there a number that we worry about? Is there any usefulness to the ammonia level? Um, we're going to talk a little bit about complications of hepatic encephalopathy. Why do we care? Well, if it gets really bad, we, the patients can have cerebral edema and herniation. And that is bad news. Well, there are several studies, and most of these studies looked at lactulose. And lactulose really does improve encephalopathy um, but in short-term survival, but has no usefulness in long-term survival, survivability. So, although we're in the job of short-term, we're in the short-term business, and we want to make people better right away, and we know how to make people better right away, um, just kind of remember that it doesn't really help them from a long-term benefit. And really, um, a lot of the studies have looked at lactulose as a bridging therapy to transplant. So keeping them functional to the point where if they can get uh, better in a transplant would might save them. All right, how do we diagnose uh, encephalopathy? Well, these are some grades of hepatic encephalopathy. Not really that important for the emergency physicians to recognize the grades of encephalopathy. For most uh, diagnoses, you know, we, we kind of like to grade them. Well, they're having chest pain, we want to know is the chest pain really worrisome? Do they have really worrisome uh, features or not? And we like to grade them in our mind and do kind of a pretest probability of their level of badness. For us, I think mainly we want to see how off are they from their baseline, essentially. 
These are some grades. We all, this is from the, from the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases. Um, there's a citation right here. And um, once again, the ammonia level, although helpful in kind of guiding treatment in terms of how well they're improving, the absolute level when you take in the, in the ED is not at all helpful. It can be elevated, it can be low, there are other metabolites. So take that with a grain of salt. It's kind of like a BNP for someone in CHF. All right, the effectiveness of lactulose. Well, we know that lactulose um, does improve encephalopathy, but has no effect on mortality. So this is a Cochrane review, and it showed that suggests that antibiotics such as neomycin are superior to non-absorbable disaccharides. So lactulose is a non-absorbable disaccharide. Um, currently, there's a Cochrane review that's undergoing to evaluate the effects of antibiotics on the improvement of encephalopathy and survival. So not just lactulose, but antibiotics to improve, improve encephalopathy and improving survival. And then finally, um, there is um, some kind of other treatment modalities that you may have heard of, uh, such as flumazino, which is a benzodiazepine antagonist. Um, there's some short-term improvement with the use of flumazino, but no long-term benefit. So, is it <coughs> like a side effect of the antibiotic, or is it the antibiotic treating a bacteria? No one really knows. I think people think that the antibiotics, that, that usually encephalopathy, that, that there is a buildup of some sort of bacteria in, in your uh, system that's causing an increased level of encephalopathy. So no one is really entirely sure. Um, they're just kind of stabbing a little bit in the dark. All right. Well, we've all had this patient before. And ascites, essentially, is a word that comes from the Greek word askos, which um, Dr. Mervis is going to tell us what that means. Well, ASCOS means bag or sack. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's exactly what this is. It's a huge ball or bag or sack. <clears throat> and are you familiar with that? A huge bag or a sack? No. Okay. So it's really, the end, it's really the end result of hydrostatic pressures that are exceeding colloidal pressures. So it's a ton of fluid where there's not supposed to be fluid. So ascites. When should we treat ascites? Any stabs? Looking for infection. So looking for infection. Anything else, Dr. Raynard? Discomfort, problems breathing. Okay, so trouble breathing, discomfort. Dr. Kinney, any other thoughts? Uh, I guess if it's so painful that you can't breathe. Okay, great. So, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, you're going to hear about a whole bunch of associations that I never heard about until I made this lecture, but these are the experts in this realm. They say, to treat it when you have abdominal pain, so worried about an infection, when you are concerned uh, for difficulties with breathing, so there's a ton of mechanical pressure that's building up and you absolutely cannot move your diaphragm and you cannot breathe, and um, when you're concerned for SPP, so abdominal pain, SPP, kind of in the same realm. All right, well I have a question for you guys now. And, uh, Dr. Lee is going to field this question. We have a 48-year-old male with ascites and abdominal pain. His blood pressure, you see, he's not febrile. His exam, very benign. A little tender, no big deal. What is the most appropriate next step? Should we get a CMP and a CBC? Should we get a CMP, CBC, and an official slash radiologic ultrasound? <coughs> Should we perform ultrasound guided paracentesis without coags? Or should we get a CMP, CBC, and a bedside sono? Or finally, we just reassure the patient if he tolerates POs and he's afebrile and his vitals are at his 
or her baseline, his baseline? I'd probably do uh, D. So do D. Get a CMP, CBC, and a bedside sauna. Well, there's no absolute uh, right or wrong answer. There's always the, the best answer. Um, but we'll talk about this a little bit. So that kind of sets the stage. You guys want the answer? No. Oh, you don't. All right. So the, the, the real answer is I made this question up, so this is a little artificial. They probably would throw this out in a USMLE in-service exam. But it's to perform ultrasound-guided paracentesis without coags. And people uh, may not agree with that. In fact, um, some of my attending colleagues, oh, Dr. Schultz and Dr. Alawadi, what do you guys think about this question? So I have a clinical question. This is a 48-year-old male with ascites, abdominal pain, complaints of abdominal pain. Here's his blood pressure. He's afebrile. His, his, his exam is completely, he's a little tender, but nothing that impressive. And the question is, um, which one of these um, would you choose? Don't you have to know how much ascites he has before you? Yeah. Assuming it was that picture, yeah. the guys like the other bloom, um, probably uh, just see. There's okay. a study that was, this was a big issue way back with the dinosaurs when they were with the ascites, if they have either the ascites is a little bit worse than usual or they have a little bit more abdominal pain than, the, than usual that the, and again, when they're that big and that easy to tap, you know, I mean, it's a no-brainer, <coughs> you just tap them. And if you go in the midline or you go on the sides, there's virtually no vasculature you're going to hit. I don't get the counts, I don't get uh, coags or anything, you just tap them. I agree with Carl. It's actually, these studies were Positive SVP could not be ruled out on clinical, basically. That's why you send you send the, the actual tap. Please. But you wouldn't you wouldn't send coax before you tapped them. You don't want to know the patient's coax. I would love to, but as for the choices that you're giving me, I would go with C. Okay, but great. You would, yeah. Great. So so now this leads us to paracentesis, the safety of a paracentesis. Well, we're going to talk about coagulation profiles and something called PICD, paracentesis induced circulatory dysfunction. How much fluid can we take off safely and is there a compromise in hypotension and whatnot? Well, first of all, we should all know that paracentesis is extremely, extremely, extremely safe to do. There's a less than a 0.1% complication rate less than a 0.1 complication rate. Now, once again, these societies, the American Association of the Study of Liver Diseases does not recommend prophylactic blood products prior to a paracentesis, and there is no absolute level of coagulopathy that would prevent a paracentesis. So whether they had an INR of 1.4 or an INR of 3.8, doesn't really matter because the complication rate's pretty low, and we're talking about cost-benefit ratio and safety, and so you should know that. Now, this whole thought about paracentesis-induced circulatory dysfunction, what is that? Well, it's all about the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system that is associated with renal dysfunction, and there's an earlier reoccurrence of ascites and a higher mortality. So, how, how much fluid can we take off? Um, that's, that's what we're going to talk about. So the albumin, um, albumin administered with paracentesis, there was one study which showed, well, can, should, we, should we infuse albumin while we're doing paracentesis or right after we do paracentesis? There's one study that showed no benefit if the volume of the fluid removed is under 6 liters. So 6 liters seems to be the general cutoff for people with paracentesis in which you don't need to worry about PICD. All right? Very good. So you do the paracentesis on this gentleman, and you suck off about five and a half liters because there was a quite a bit of fluid in there. And this is what you get. 
is left out here? Dr. Popa. We have 800 nucleated cells. The laboratory calls you back, and no organism seen on the gram stain. They were just right on it and did a gram stain for you. All right, so we're going to treat this person. Well, this is a little trick because we have to always remember, and then they call you back and say, this is the rest of the labs that came back. So how do we interpret this? What was that, Dr. Raynor? I think you want to do 25% of 800. So 25% of 800, which is? Okay. So just remember that the nucleated cells need to be multiplied by the polys like you had mentioned, Dr. Popa, and make sure that we do that because oftentimes we get pretty crazy about the nucleated cells and then we're about to treat them and we forget that it's actually the number of polys to treat SVP. All right. So once again, the diagnosis is, is made by cell count. You send off the cell count, you get a nucleated cell, you multiply that by the number of bands and polys, and you get a number. If it's over 250, you're going to treat. Dr. Srinivas. Um, what is the cell count for like a septic joint? What does it need to be? For a septic joint? Yeah. It varies, but usually it's over 100,000. It's 100,000? Yeah. But it can vary. It's not an absolute number. Here, this is an absolute number, and it's only because... Um, it, it, it was the studies that were done uh, in the past. Like any absolute number, it's just an arbitrary number that was made and said the number of people with diagnosed parasin, parasin, uh, SVP over 250 is very, very, very high. So it has, it has that specificity. So the 100,000 would be the same thing, right? You take the percentage. You take the, yes, exactly. For, for a joint, it would be exactly right. the you, same way to do if it. If you're having a septic joint, the, the only things that give you cell counts in the 50 to 100,000 range are either like inflammatory changes from rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, gout, or septic joints. And they're all polyps. So, I mean, you're not going to see, I would say never, but essentially never, are you going to see an inflamed joint with a cell count of 80,000 that's 50 or 60% of the So when you get those counts that high in a joint, it's either infectious, septic joint, or Inflammatory, not like inflammatory like DJD, but like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or something like that. And those are all polyps. Cool. Is there a correction for blood for RBCs? <coughs> no correction. There's no, there's no, uh, they're not nucleated, right? It's not like an LP where you have to correct if you have a lot of. Red no. Blood. So here's a critical action remember to send a cell count. Remember to do a differential, which is always usually done. Remember to multiply the cell count with your differential. Remember to inoculate the cultures at bedside. We do not do this very often, and we should. We should at least tell the nurse and say, please send these and put them in blood culture bottles and send them in right away. If you wait too long, it, it loses its, its effectiveness. Do you need to put them in the blood culture when you send them down? Because what we do is we order the yeah. culture. We set them in the blacktops, and I always assumed that they put them in the medium that they needed it to go in when they got down to the lab. But yeah, they never put them in the blood. We should, we should try to inoculate, from the readings that I did, we should try to inoculate the blood culture tubes at the bedside. So I think that's what we did in med school. I've just never heard anybody. We should, although as long as the nurse, if you're passing that on and say, please do this in the next five minutes or ten minutes, I think that's okay. You just don't want it to sit there forever and ever and ever. So you just draw fluid initially and just stick it in a blood culture Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they actually have these vacutainer tops you can put on the blood culture thing for your own safety so you're not like sticking the needle back in and so you can actually do that. So that's something that we should do. The other thing that's kind of a cool thing that you guys might, may have done in the past depending on where you um, did medical school as leukocyte esterase reagent, so you can actually take a little strip and dip it, and it has a varied uh, amount of sensitivity and specificity, but a high negative predictive value. And here's a study um, done that essentially um, shows here that uh, leukocyte esterase reagent strips were found to have a high sensitivity, have a sensitivity that was kind of very varied from 45 to 100, and a specificity that was a higher, obviously, 81 to 100. 
Um, positive predictive value was pretty terrible, but the negative predictive value was pretty good. And what, what does that really mean? Essentially, you can use this as a screening tool and, has, and have a decent negative predictive value. In other words, the ne negative predictive value, do you guys remember what that is? Anyone? Well, and it is the likelihood that a negative test result uh, excludes disease. So, so that, that can be used at the bedside. I'm not saying to replace it. This is just a fun thing that you should know about. If for whatever reasons our system is down and you're like, shucks, I really want to know right now whether to start treatment or not, or what, can I send this patient home? You're, you know, so it's, it has. If you're doing a therapeutic tab and you want to see if you have to wait for the lab results before discharging the patient, you can just dip right there. Uh, we'll get to that. So, so this, is, this is a way. The negative predictive value is 87 to 100%. So it, it, it is varied. So you're going to miss some people, right, essentially. And so we'll get to who should, be, who should we send cell count differentials to. Well, there's a, so we know that treating SBV is polymicrobial. Here's the typical agents that are out there. E. coli, Klebsiella, Streptomoniae. Asymptomatic outpatient taps. So there's a study that was done that looked at asymptomatic people coming in and say, I have fluid in my belly again. I need, I need to remove it. And they had a pretty low rate of SBP, 0 to 3%. Now, the same study, or a different study, looked at inpatient TAPs on asymptomatic patients who are having ascites. And those folks had a positive TAP rate, or a positive SBP rate, of about 21%. So the question is, which one of these really represents our population? I think the inpatient group more likely represents our population, or at least a, somewhere, we probably lie somewhere in the middle. So my recommendation with this literature is to send cell counts and cultures even on your therapeutic taps. I know we don't do that. I know I don't do that, but I think I'm going to change my practice. If any of you wanted to replicate this study and do it in the ED, that might be kind of cool to look at. So um, we could talk about that later, and if someone's interested, because we do a lot of paracentesis in our emergency department, but we can look at folks that we think are here mainly for therapeutic reasons and not diagnostic reasons, and follow them and look at their culture results and look at their positive results and then publish this. So if, if anyone is interested, that, that's, uh, that's something that we could do. Anyway, so what antibiotics should we choose? Well. We know it's polymicrobial, so we need some polymicrobial coverage. Um, usually, a third-generation cephalosporin is just fine, and uh, that's, that's what I would choose. Um, you can also use ampicillin with tobramycin. There's also studies that say people with less severe SBP, I don't know exactly what they meant in the literature about less severe SBP. <laughs> I imagine that people look really good, and all of a sudden you're super surprised that they actually have a positive cell count you can do um, POOfloxacin. So there's a 2001 uh, Cochrane review concluded that there's insufficient evidence to support a particular antibiotic regimen based on nine randomized controlled trials. Um, and uh, they also looked at combining uh, antibiotics with albumin. Uh, you may have seen this study with cefotaxime and albumin. And uh, that was shown in one study to be superior to cefotaxime alone although this was not duplicated. So just telling you what's out there, I don't think I would use albumin and antibiotics. I probably would just use uh, antibiotics in a positive tap, but, um, but it, uh, especially if you're under the six liter threshold. Well, there's a phenomenon called bacteriocytes. What is bacteriocytes? Well, some patients have infection in the absence of a neutrocytic fluid. So we have, a, that's the condition termed as bacteriocytes. So there's a small sample size of the study here that looked at about um, that looked at patients who had acidic fluid um, and that had um, polys less than 250, but turned out to have positive cultures. Well, it turned out about 32% of these patients had positive cultures with a negative cell count, and about half of these evolved into SBP, while the other half did not. And they did this by repeat paracentesis. So the studies aren't the greatest of studies. Just to kind of remember, probably important to send cultures as we don't do oftentimes. So some people can have, so if you have someone who needs a therapeutic tap, 
You tap them, they're less than 250, you send cultures, you get a positive culture result, pick up the phone, have them come back in, and we can decide what to do then. Namely, either retap them or just give them antibiotics and admit them. If they look sick, give them antibiotics and admit them. It, it, it makes sense. This is a disease, I mean, it, you don't, it's not like flipping a light switch. I mean, you have to see the peritoneal fluid, there has to be uh, replication bacteria, there has to be immunologic response, it's going to take time. So if they happen to come in, and the white cat isn't quite there yet. It's sort of like early meningitis. You know, yeah. Sometimes with it, you have polys. It's not a, a classic bacterial peritonitis, but I mean uh, uh, meningitis. But it could be early, and we retap them in 12 hours yeah. to see whether it's truly lymphocytic, which is probably viral, or if it's an early bacterial meningitis. Probably the same thing for this thing. Um, yeah. Most of the time, these people tend to come in later. So by the time they come in, it's been well established that the white cat's going to be 250. But it wouldn't surprise me that they could easily seed their peritoneum. Yeah, and, and that's exactly um, what this study kind of suggests because they found that those people who ended up having a positive tap, uh, usually that was done, that kind of progressed in six hours. So it, it was like an early SVP that had positive cultures, but we didn't know that yet. And then they had a repeat tap in six hours that had um, signs of SVP with a polys over 250. So. So just mainly be very, very careful with folks who have poor protoplasm and liver failure and ascites. All right. And we see also like another point, the, the actually concept behind ascites is what you're not making proteins and actually your immunoglobulins and antibodies are nothing but proteins. So those people to start off with are actually immunocompromised, believe it or not. So it's very tricky with these kind of scenarios. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And all these people, they had negative gram stains uh, they did not check gram stains. Because if you have a positive gram stain but a negative white white count, yes. Would you treat? It's a very good question. I I don't know the answer to it according to the evidence, but I think I, I would I treat would, it. I would because I just said yeah. they're immune right. they're Because right. I would assume that they yeah. would turn to be positive right. later with their polys, but uh, I'd, from the evidence, I'm not sure what to recommend. Especially if it's about E. coli or something. That's it. So hepatic renal syndrome, uh, we accounted this sometimes. This is the definition. So you need cirrhosis with ascites. You need a creatinine over 1.5. You need no improvement of serum creatinine within two days of diuretic withdrawal and volume expansion. So we technically cannot diagnose hepatic renal syndrome in the emergency department unless this has already been done by their liver doctor or their outpatient doctor already. The absence of shock and shock we need the absence of shock, no current or recent treatment with nephrotoxin medications, and absence of parenchymal liver, liver, uh, kidney disease. So anyways, something to be aware of. Um, the management of hepatorenal syndrome, well, albumin. Albumin decreases mortality and, and improves renal function, so albumin's great. This should be our first-line treatment in, in, in hepatorenal uh, syndrome, uh, even in the ED, but remember, that uh, we cannot really diagnose it because it needs two days of uh, the tincture of time to kind of figure that out. So crystalloid treatment, which we usually do for everyone who's hypotensive with liver failure, is probably not going to be the right choice. So if you were going to run for fluids, prob I would suggest running for the albumin. Use colloids, do not use crystalloids. But you have to make sure the patient's not in shock and there is um, you know, if you remember, there's a study on albumin and shock. Have you guys read the study at all? Um, basically, it doesn't work. So, if the patient's in shock, answer is crystalloids. If the patient, blood. <laughs> what'd you say? Blood. Blood. Well, I mean, blood. Uh, it's fluids, 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 and then right. blood. You know, it's Manny Rivers' study, essentially. But if they have hepatorenal syndrome or a hypotensive and you, you're concerned and they're not in shock or you don't think they're septic or in shock, then the answer is albumin, colloids. 5% or 25? Uh, 25. 25, yes. More yes. Uh, and there's been some studies looking at um, increasing splanchnic blood flow because that's essentially what you want to do. You want to use you want to increase splanchnic blood flow. How do you do that? Well, you can use vasopressin or vasopressin analog. There's this vasopressin analog that's used in Europe called Turlipressin. It's not here yet. Uh, it's not available. You can use norepinephrine. So there's a trial that looked at norepinephrine, comparing it to tirolipressin, this, this vaso 
press an analog and they found no change in mortality between the two groups. So I would say if you're concerned, albumin may be a good start. If you're still concerned or you can't get albumin or you don't want to use albumin, norepi might be uh, a very good choice. And this is a bridging mechanism to get them to transplant or tips or something like that. These patients are very sick and their overall mortality rate is super duper high. So uh, just remember, no matter what you do, it may not be enough, but if you were to do something, I would say incre increase splanchnic blood, blood flow. I had a GI patient and a GI fellow told me that actually they, one of the problems with norepi is it can increase portal hypertension, portal blood flow, where people have very large esophageal varices mm -hmm. that you're worried that they're bleeding or whatnot, then it's at risk for, could possibly worsen that. Yeah. Would be the only issue. Yeah. If they were GI bleeding as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you have, you have someone going absolutely horrible. Midadrine. Midadrine too. Yeah. Yep. That's that's been studied as well. Absolutely. Better than norepinephrine? Th there's no head to head with them. Right. No. So you'd actually uh, RQ would go for dopamine for for example, if you start with green on those, like well, the, well, the recent study is like this is all uh, it doesn't exist, like the five percent, whatever. But dopamine is actually kinda of really safe. Right. If you use levofit, levofit, for example, you know, you shut down all your, you shut down, you know, even it goes fairly preferential for the brain and heart, all that, you're right. So you might probably end up in a gut scheme or something like that. All right, and then finally, paracentesis. Well, there's, there's some non-randomized studies that show that paracentesis in volume-resuscitated patients with hepato renal syndrome showed improvement in renal function. They're non-randomized, take it with a grain of salt, probably more to come. All right, we talked about this. Finally, back to our case a little bit, well, esophageal varices. Um, always ABCs, as you had done, Dr. Ibrahim. Um, there's this question about the NG tube. Whether or not, should we drop an NG tube? Is that gonna muck things up? Well, the answer is no. Do not worry about dropping an NG tube. There's really hardly any studies that show um, there are no studies at all that have, have shown that it increases the chance of you disrupting one of these friable esophageal varices. Now, the question is whether you want to drop an NG tube or not. That's a whole different question. Not everyone who's vomiting up blood needs an NG tube. And so, remember, um, if uh, so is there a need? That's not clear. Um, I think it's perfectly fine not to drop an NG tube. Um, we can probably um, survey the faculty and see what they think, but um, you should know you won't uh, disrupt um, a clot and worsen the bleeding. I think um, if they have emesis, then it's not necessary. If they have hematemesis, uh, where it might be useful is in a couple of cases where the patient uh, is altered um, and they have an increased risk of aspiration. So you want to clear all of that blood out of the out of the stomach. And then secondarily, if they're hemodynamically unstable. Um, patient with a GI bleed but they have no evidence of hematemesis so you know they have a GI bleed they're hemodynamically unstable and you're like mm, is this coming from something in the stomach or somewhere lower in the intestines so I think those are the two possible possible places that uh, you might use it any any thoughts from the fac faculty out there so it used to be a treatment option but that's been disproven so now <clears throat> there's no clear mandate for NG2 if you know what's going on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think some of the issues you know, to individualize for patients is so we are concerned about aspiration. Um, that evaporated, <coughs> then the indication for NG2 became much, much uh, Okay. Uh, we're going to talk briefly about erythromycin. Intravenous erythromycin has been shown in two randomized trials to actually improve gastric emptying prior to EGD, so it's something to at least consider. I'm not really keen on it. Um, but uh, something to consider, and we'll talk about somatostatin analogs like octreotide and prophylactic antibiotics. Yes, Dr. Ibrahim. So I have a quick question. I read this in one of the, like our thousand questions for EM, where yes. it was saying that if someone comes in and they have bright red blood for rectum, yes. then you actually want to drop an NG tube in because you're not, if, especially if you don't know where it's coming from, because it could actually be an upper GI bleed that's too brisk. Mm. But I've never really seen that happen, so I'm not sure if that's so the, if you have a, it's, for esophageal varices, mostly you will have hematemesis. Right. But uh, for a brisk upper GI bleed that essentially is coming from a gastric 
ulcer or whatnot. Um, I think there's some utility in that, although I would I might argue against it, uh, just because um, they're eventually either going to get a scope uh, from above or below, and mainly concentrating on hemodynamic stability and blood products would be the way to go. But um, but uh, uh, I'm not a big fan of the NG tube unless you have a small bowel obstruction. I, I've not seen any really decent arguments that everybody with bright red blood there's a lot of people we see absolutely asymptomatic, and it is, <clears throat> I won't say impossible, but it is inconceivable to me that somebody could have a brisk, so brisk a GI bleed, they could have bright red blood corrective and still look absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. No abdominal pain whatsoever, normal vital signs. I'm sure it could happen, but it's got to be fairly unlikely. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I've worked with almost everybody uh, here, and I'm not familiar with any any of the attendings that routinely, always put an NG2 down, somebody's in charge of All right, well, let's talk about somatostatin analogs and acute variceal bleeding. Well, this is a Cochrane review. I'm going to speed the things up a little bit because I want to keep the other lecturers on, ta on task. Uh, keep me on task with other lecturers to get uh, their hour. Um, so this is a Cochrane. Uh, have you guys, do you guys read the Cochrane um, review at all? Cochrane, it's really cool. I, I think they do a really good job, and they they sieve out all the nonsensical studies, and they look at the studies that really count, and maybe summarize the stuff for you. You get it online. Yeah, you can go onto the UCI website and go through the library to get online. If you have a VPN account, you can get it online. Um, I'll send you the link. Do they have like a monthly summary though, or is it just if you're looking? That's a good question. I I there may be something like that. I don't prescribe subscribe to it, but um, there may be. I'll look into that. So anyways, um, somatostatin analogs, Cochrane meta-analysis demonstrated no survival benefit, but failure of initial hemostasis was reduced, and the amount of blood transfused was slightly decreased. So basically, it helps control the symptoms, but when you're looking at the real outcomes, morbidity, mortality, not much help there. But I think if you want to stop the bleeding, which is what we want to do, that's good. And you want to reduce the number of transfusions, that's pretty good too. So I'd I would certainly start a somatostatin analog. Well, sclerotherapy versus vasoactive drugs in varices. Well, a Cochrane review of these 17 randomized control trials compared all types of medical therapy with endoscopic sclerotherapy. Sclerotherapy was not, was not superior to medical management. So although we're jumping on the phone to get GI in, I still would recommend that. And, you know, the, um, the AASLD, the, the governing body recommends getting GI involved to scope them within the first eight hours. Just remember that uh, medical management is just as good as sclerotherapy. So really concentrate on what you can concentrate on, which is the medical management, and hope for the best that things work out, and then have someone else help you carry that coffin, and that means getting GI involved as soon as possible. But it could be, we don't know. I mean, a lot of times you're like, I think it's varices, but it could be an ulcer. Exactly. So we're not 100% sure. Right. But if they have stigmata of liver disease, yeah. more than likely it's esophageal varices. I've, I've had esophageal varices. It was banned or scler you know, sclerosed like three months ago. You know, if it walks like a duck, it's probably. But you're right. You could, you could diagnose something else, for but sure. Actually, you see, what, what you need to do is, is on the medical management, you, you can't control the situation, but if there is an active bleeder, you really need sclerotherapy. And a lot of the GI fellows will argue that dropping an NG and doing a one liter of flavage, and then you can see, is it still active bleeder? They'll jump in and come in. So th this is where an NG lavage will make a huge difference, saying, oh, I'm gonna just fresh bright blood. There is a bleeder. I, uh, I would definitely call GI right away. I'm just telling you what the evidence shows. The evidence shows there's absolutely no difference. So what can I control? I can control the medical management. And when GI comes in, if they're having, you know, dinner somewhere else, um, sure I get a, I get a little antsy that they're not right there right away. But uh, but just just what the evidence shows, you should you should kind of know. I, I still recommend getting on the phone as soon as you optimize medical management. Have someone on the phone and call right away. Absolutely. So summary of variceal bleeding, ABCs with fluid resuscitation, IV access, somatostatin analog, absolutely. Consider an NG tube 
and erythromycin. Consider these two, not absolutely essential, but you should start prophylactic antibiotics, right? Because there, is, there are many, many studies and very good studies that show severe bacterial infections are extremely common in varicella bleeding. So we need to start in the emergency department. When someone you think is having an esophageal varicella bleed, we need to start prophylactic antibiotics. Uh, there's a meta-analysis study that showed that prophylactic antibiotics decreases the risk of infection and increases survival. So actually increases one of these hard, hard outcomes. So we need to do this. I know I don't do this, but we should do it. Where is the infection? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Um, the antibiotics they recommend are norfloxacin oral, norfloxacin, another quinolone, or a third generation cephalosporin. So, yeah, gram negative coverage essentially. It's bacterial translocation. It's bacterial translocation, probably SBP, but not entirely sure. Have you sometimes usual neomycin? Actually, 67% give gastritis. So when people start vomiting, you don't know it's the erythromycin. It's actually their disease. That is true. If you give it IV, it's like giving potassium or Yeah. So that's what you really need to know about Yeah. Yeah. So back to our patient. Here's our patient. 48-year-old male, altered mental status, brought in by EMS from home, vomited 500 mLs of blood en route. Here's his vital signs. Um, what are we doing now, Dina, after this lecture? So He's altered. He's vomiting right in front of you. Intubate. Intubate. OK. So, so you intubated him, and uh, you dropped an NG tube, and you just get 750 mLs of blood back right away. OK. Um, so you're going to start, you're going to get blood. OK. You're going to call GI. OK. You're going to start antibiotics. OK. Okay. And then the only other thing I would add to that is make sure you start a somatostatin analog. Oh, right. And a triotide. Right. Absolutely. So you're right. IV access, intubate. Now, this person, if you remember, we had a hard time getting IV access. Right. Where are we going to look for IV access? So we can always do an EJ. So no EJs are uh, visible. Then IO or central lens. All right. The IO kit is somehow lost. Then central. Where are we going with this? Um, IJ. Okay, good. So just make sure that you have a compressible site. So IJ is probably the most, most e easily accessible, the, the most clean. Uh, you could use a groin, but if you're, it's going to be in place for a while, so use an IJ. Do not use a subclavian because not if you stick and you miss, it's a, sorry for the pun, a bloody mess. But I would consider the groin to start. If this guy's actively vomiting and you got to manage the airway, you may not be able to get him in a position that's safe to put the IJ in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Probably not. Um, I know we always start protonics, uh, PPI, but um, it's not really an acid issue. It's <laughs> it's a portal <coughs> hypertension issue. So if, but oftentimes, uh, like Dr. Mervis said, we're unsure where this bleeding. We're not a hundred percent sure. Let's put it that way. We're pretty sure. We're like ninety-five percent sure this is coming from esophageal varus but we're not 100% sure. So I think there's no downside to starting a PPI. And what about the vasopressin? I mean, that one study you showed. Yeah. Was that still not recommended? For well, if they continue to be hypotensive after fluid resuscitation, certainly blood products are, are called for, somatostatin analog, and then vasopressin and or norepi might be helpful. If they have liver disease yes. and they have lower GI bleed, yes. but not upper, yes. do you assume that it's upper and you do all this? or? And how are you confirming it's a lower GI bleed? Like they're bleeding from the rectum. Okay. Actively bleeding. So, so you're asking me, do, I, do we assume mm -hmm. that it is a maybe, lower GI maybe, bleed and not an upper GI no, bleed? Maybe it is upper and like do all this. They're not vomiting blood, but <coughs> they have liver disease but they have lower GI bleed. That's a difficult question. I think that's a case-by-case -case question. I think more than likely, um, if they're having a GI bleed um, and you're, you're fairly confident that it's a lower GI bleed, I think uh, not starting a triotide would be okay. But it's a case-by-case -case kind of presentation. I, I don't have a blanket answer for you. Would you put an NG tube? 
So this is where an NG tube might be helpful because they're, if they're hemodynamically unstable but they do not have <coughs> signs of hematemesis or a history of hematemesis and you have a diagnosed rectal exam or some sort of stool that shows a blood or melana, this is where an NG tube might be helpful to see if it's coming from the upper part. So this is one of the cases where it might be helpful. And if they're sick enough to Yes. So pitfalls. Let's talk a little bit about pitfalls for a couple of minutes. The patient needed central access, so I placed a subclavian line. We just talked about that. So if someone has liver disease, they need central, a central line, consider strongly to use an ultrasounded IJ or an ultrasounded groin line if they're really sick and you can't lay them down. The patient was afebrile, so I did not send the paracentesis fluid analysis. So we all know you don't need to be febrile. You don't even need to have an abdominal exam that's that worrisome. So although it's peritonitis, the exam is really not that impressive. So I would argue every single person that we do, even for these quote-unquote therapeutic taps, should have a cell count, differential, and culture sent. I think if they don't complain of abdominal pain and they don't have abdominal tenderness, um, then I don't care if they're suicidal. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? What does the price of beans in Russia have anything to do with that, right? So anyways, uh, yes, so I would say that's not really your chief complaint. The patient had a seizure during his evaluation in the emergency department and then you intubated the person, you didn't really know what was going on, and then you sent labs, their lactate was eight, and their glucose was 20. I actually did this on a liver patient during my residency. I will never ever forget that, I felt like a fool. And all I needed was dextrose. That's all I needed. I didn't need succinylcholine, I didn't need any of this. And, uh, and I don't know if the guy ever got off the bat, I'm not really sure. He was pretty sick, but still. I did not prescribe antibiotics for the variceal hemorrhage patient. We talked about that. Prophylactic antibiotics for every single person who has a variceal bleed. I did not recognize the patient was altered. He comes in here drunk all the time. Just remember, you know, I, we, you probably heard this a, a ton of times. If they're altered, really, really take it seriously. And, you know, the nurses, the EMS, um, everyone will be like, oh, this guy's here back again, he's back again, he's back again. Check for head trauma. Make sure you know you do due diligence and make sure they're coming around because you know if they do have alcohol on board they should be getting better with their mental status. Uh, this is just a ton of stuff that I read and um, that's it. <laughs>